Hello and welcome to this week's podcast, an interview with John Bellingham. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and it is indeed a remarkable interview uh, because the Bellingham family are a most interesting family that date back to the Castle Bellingham when they originally settled in Ireland and uh, later split after the Reformation, and John's great-great-grandfather, William Bellingham, moved from County Log down to County Kildare, and shortly afterwards built a cottage on the Hill of Hote, and that's where this week's interview starts, when John explains the background to the Bellingham family. This family home that you're living in, is, many generations of your family lived here. My great-grandfather built it mm-hmm. just before the famine uh, in the 1830s. And when he built the house, uh, what architect or who did he use to...? Himself. And, um, he, uh, uh, what happened was he had a, a, a farm... Uh, in North County Kildare, uh, just outside the domain wall of Carton, called Ravensdale, which had belonged to the Duke of Leinster. And um, his his great-aunt had generously bought it for him and given it to him. And he, he was married to a first cousin, also Bellingham, daughter of an army officer in, in the Bengal Infantry, I believe. And he had a, a rake of children, I forget how many, about nine, and somebody had told them that sea bathing was good for their health. So uh, he thought he'd come out to Hoth. Now, at that time, the peninsula belonged to the Earl of Hoth. But uh, he had uh, um, had some financial pressure. And part of it, the southwest corner of it, had been mortgaged to Mr. Pyle. So this was actually part of the Pyle estate from which uh, my my, um, great-grandfather bought about 65 acres. And at that time, there was no road on the south side um, of the the peninsula. He asked Lord Hoth if it would be possible to build a road, but Lord Hoth said no, he didn't want to do anything that would enhance the Pyle estate, I suppose. So what my great-grandfather, William Bellingham, and his wife uh, had to do was to build a little harbour down there, their own harbour, and then the material was brought in by sea. And what he built was quite a modest um, cottage, really. Well, a little bit more than a cottage. It was was, uh, one storey with a basement, and then behind there are two storeys. And uh, um, when my parents enlarged the house uh, by taking off the roof to put on another storey, they found in the roof some of the... um, corners of the joists were actually the bow of a ship. This was obviously flotsam and jetsam that had been washed up on the on the mm. coast there, which he bought. And there's a, a, there's a peculiarity about Hoth and Malahide, because Lord Hoth and Lord Torbert were both hereditary admirals. So whereas in, in other parts of the country, the landowner owns as far as high water mark, in, in Hoth and Malahide, the, 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 land, the landowner, thanks to Lord Hoth, um, owned down to low water mark, and and therefore could claim the flotsam and jetsam that came in. So, the roof was built partly from the, from this flotsam and jetsam. So he 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 lived here and reared um, his. Well, he lived in Ravensdale in North Kildare, but it was here in in the summer. And the family would come over in the summer, and uh, one coach 
went ahead the day before um, with servants and supplies and the family uh, followed the next day in another coach and it took them most of the day to drive from, from Leaslip, which is between Leaslip and Maynooth but on the back road uh, to Hoth. By that time uh, Lord Hoth had consented for a road to be built. So they, they came the, uh, the, uh, on the road that, we, that uh, is, is here now, which was later used by the tram track because the tram Tram was abolished in the 1950s. Your great-grandfather, where was his uh, financial affairs? H- how did he survive? And... Well, he was a farmer in, in, at this place called Ravensdale in, in North... It was quite a big farm. It now belongs to the Bruton family. Yeah. And um, he actually improved the land here. We, we had his diary uh, describing what he'd done, which my father gave to the Brutons when they bought the place. And he also improved the land here. He he straightened up the stream and he drained a marsh, and he built the little harbour. And there were hardly any houses on the south side of the peninsula. Mm. There were cottages, crofters, you would call them. Actually, there were still traces of some lazy beds here in rather... Uh, rather remote pockets in, in the rock where there's fertile ground before the famine. Of course, the, the, with the overpopulation before the famine, every every rood of ground was 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 uh, was cultivated. And John recalls here the extraordinary differences in how time was set in different parts of the island of Ireland. Because one of the things you used to say in those days, when you took the mail boat, uh, you were reminded when you boarded the boat at Kingstown, uh, as it was then called, that um, before you landed at Holyhead, you had to put your watch 25 minutes forward. And you were reminded the other way around, uh, before landing at Kingstown, to, to be sure and put your watch 25 minutes back. Because um, until 1917... Uh, we had our own time in Ireland. It, it was universal for the whole of Ireland, for the whole of Ireland of Ireland. The mind, it was never accepted down here, where we had another time, which was called God's time. Actually, when I was growing up here, um, the, the uh, summertime was, wasn't really accepted by the country people, mm. and they refused to, to, to put their clocks forward uh, um, in summertime. And, of course, not many of them had, had a wireless then, so you had to be very precise whether you meant new time or old time. But round here it was even different because we had God's time. Because what had happened was that uh, uh, um, Dublin was 25 minutes uh, uh, behind um, Greenwich. But when you got down to the Midlands, it, it, you were another five minutes behind Greenwich because about every 10 miles you lost a minute as you go further west. Yes. So here in the Midlands we were precisely half an hour bit behind Greenwich. And um, before um, Longford Cathedral w- was built, um, the pro-cathedral for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Arda and Claude McRoy's was in Ballymachan, which is only about one um, time minute away f- 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 from here. And so the parish priest had a, uh, um, or rather the, the bishop had, had a had a sundial in his garden, and, and, and he said that, that, that um, in his diocese they, they were going to keep God's time. They weren't interested in Dublin time <laughs> or Greenwich time. So the Angelus yeah. was to be rung at, uh, at um, what, what in, in winter other people called half past six, and of course what in, in, in the morning that in, and what in, in, in the summer would have been half past seven. So we had God's time here, which was five minutes 
behind um, old time. Right. But in the meantime, uh, <laughs> what was happening uh, with your father's life? I mean, well, uh, what he, happened? He, he went to school, did he? In, in, in he, went, he went to school. And here John tells a fascinating story about his father, Stuart Bellingham, and his involvement with the Larne and Haute gun running. My father being a young man of... Uh, my father was born in 1893, so he must have been sort of rising 20 at mm. the time. And he, he sent word over to my grandmother, who, as I say, was a widow there, that um, he'd like my father to come over because he had a special mission for him. Mm. And so my father found himself um, with two or three other young men about his own age who, who were probably going to Trinity, and they were piled into a Model T Ford. They didn't know where they were going. And they were driven up to Larne. Now, it should be said that Andrew Jemison on the grand piano always had a photograph of Carson. Yes. And so they arrived at, uh, up at Larne, um, and this ship, shortly after, came in. So this gang of young men uh, that, had, that had been probably fellow Trinity students, uh, like my father, that Andrew Jemison had, had recruited... They were um, found themselves unloading the rifles uh, of this boat that had come in, and it was done very efficiently. Apparently, at the dead of night, and the, um, and the rifles all disappeared up into the hills. And so um, that was my father taking part in the Larn gun running. Then he was down in Hoth, uh, messing about in his boat uh, with his friends, the the fishermen, and there was a fearful commotion going on. My father didn't know what it was. But then he gathered that they'd tied up the coast guards and they'd cut the cables. And the next thing is the Asgard sailed in. Yeah. And so the, the fishermen, who, who, uh, some of whom were um, sympathizers, had been primed about this. So they all formed a human chain, unloading the rifles, including my father with his friends. So my mm -hmm. father was part of the human chain that unloaded the rifles, took them off the Asgard. And then they were duly taken by the volunteers, and, and the rest is history. You know, they marched into Dublin and the Battle of Fairview and, and all did that. he know uh, Mary Spring Rice, or did he know uh, Childers at all? Not at all. Not at all. He didn't move in those exalted circles. Uh, uh, he, he, he was just a young man of Trinity, uh, quite modest. No, no, uh, um, no, no, those, those exalted um, uh, people in high society. But he, what happened then? Because uh, he enlisted uh, uh, to, to join... Oh, yes, uh, but that the, was, yes. But, I mean, his, my father had no political sympathies. I, I mean, he wasn't a unionist. It wasn't unionism that brought him up to Larne. It was simply that his godfather told him there was a, a, night's, a night's adventure ahead, which he looked forward to. In this clip, John talks about his father's time in the Great War, and he also talks about his two cousins from Castle Bellingham. And one of them, Roger, who took part in the, with the Irish Volunteers. But all three went off to the Great War. And John recounts two anecdotes, one about the famous Christmas truce and the other about his father's involvement with the French army. He was in Flanders, of course. He was in the trenches. Um, his, um, uh, you see, he, he had a cousin, um, Roger Bellingham, and another one, Edward Bellingham. In fact, they were brothers. Edward was rather older, and um, he he was, I think he was already a colonel. I think he'd been in the Boer War, actually. And the young, uh, Edward's younger brother, Roger Bellingham, uh, because they, they, they were, we, we were friends with the Castle Bellingham lot, 
although they were of different religion, they were Roman Catholics, and, and, my, and my father was Church of Ireland. But um, Roger Bellingham had been ADC to, to Lord Aberdeen, and there was, a, there was an incident there where the volunteers had a parade in, uh, they, there was a fish in Castle Bellingham, and there was, they, there was some sort of, the parade had some sort of volunteers, and Roger Bellingham found himself um, either taking part or taking the salute or something. I don't know what happened exactly, but there was a fearful row about it, and there were questions in, in Parliament. What was the Viceroy's um, ADC doing, taking part in the volunteer parade? And Roger Bellingham explained that um, all the locals were there, and everyone in Castle Bellingham was there. And uh, that was the same attitude as my father, really. I mean, you know, in the whole gun running, he was... He was just going with the flow. They, and they all went to, to Flanders then? They all went to Flanders. Roger Benjamin was killed shortly afterwards. Uh, he was killed in Flanders. Um, uh, 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 my father was in the trenches. And um, <clears throat> actually, I think they were very grim because uh, um, I know a lot of his friends were killed. I know he got he got um, virtual foot rot because you're, 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 you, know, you couldn't take your boots and socks off and your feet were, were wet. And um, uh, he uh, he didn't talk an awful lot about it uh, 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 because I think it was pretty grim. He he did become um, <clears throat> a liaison officer with with the with with the French, and um, because he spoke French, and um, he had quite a lot of stories about the difficulties. He said actually that uh, when it usually got on better with the enemy than one did with one's allies because the Allies distrusted each other so much, and the, the French and the British uh, distrusted each other profoundly, and he got the impression that one was always trying to pull, you know, pull one over on the, on the other, yes. and he had endless difficulties uh, um, uh, uh, smoothing over ruffled Imagine. susceptibilities. And there was one occasion, actually, when um, the, 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 the French, um, uh, some of the French soldiers mutinied, and Pétain, who of course was a hero uh, of the Great War at the time, Pétain decided um, that um, um, some of the mutineers should be shot. And, uh, but he couldn't find um, uh, a firing squad uh, of, of the French soldiers who, who, uh, who were willing to shoot their companions. So through my father, as he lays also, he applied to the British and said, would the British provide a firing squad to shoot the French soldiers? The, 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 the British apparently had, had, had no difficulty in, in finding volunteers to shoot the French. Uh, and my father actually, uh, he, he took part in the, in the famous Christmas truce, you know, the first Christmas of the war, when they all came out and they played, um, you know, they, they, yeah. they recognized, recognized each other by the, 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 um, the French, the, the Germans were singing Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht. And then the British answered by singing Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem, and then it ended up with the truce. And then they went out and they, they shared a Christmas tree. You remember all that? I do. And, I, and I they remember watching. And the, they played football the, and all that. And, of course, it was, there was a fearful row. The, 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 the generals on both sides thoroughly disapproved. And when next Christmas came round, they made sure that they made sure that nothing like that would uh, would, mm. would would happen. But after the war, um, my father uh, met quite a lot of German officers, and and uh, they, they, he always got on well with them, and they, and, and they talked about. They but talked but, about but it's, it's interesting he he would do that, and you know when you're talking to the enemy after the war, he 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 didn't seem your father didn't seem to. 
to 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 mind at, at, that that they had shot so many of of uh, of his companions, his side, you know that. Well, uh, well, well, I think well, that, well, that was taken. I think in war, that's taken for granted. I mean, it, it's rather different, um, uh, you know, if, if, if they're captured and tortured or that sort of thing. Yeah. But I mean, they, there wasn't they, there wasn't much of that in the in the in the Great War. What did your father say about any kind of conversation that he had uh, with the uh, the uh, German officers after the war? Oh, they compare notes. Uh, wondering if they were on the same front and and uh, and that, but my father was always, uh, um, you know, quite keen on that sort of thing, because what the, the main thing that happened to him uh, in the in the in the first war was he was gassed. Remember, there was gas in the trenches, and I think I mentioned that to you. I haven't downloaded them yet, but the, 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 his cousin Edward Bellingham kept a diary about the the gassing in the trenches and and the Irish Times. Uh, got yes, it. I think I told you about that. But um, he 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 was so badly gassed that he couldn't. They they wouldn't let him stay there. So he in I think about 1918. He was posted back to to Dublin, and he found himself stationed in Kilmainham. And uh, he was ADC to Macready, who I think was wasn't he the commander in chief? Yes. Yeah, at at the time, and at the same time he he continued. I, I mean, living so far as one could a normal life, which consisted of hunting, because all the all the, all, the, all the garrisons used to used to hunt with the ward and the. Uh, and did he say? Did he stay in the army? Uh, was he still? Oh, yeah, oh, yes, he was still in the army. And, um, and where was he stationed? In the Curra? No, he was stationed oh, no, in, 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 in Dublin, in, in, in Dublin in, Castle, in Kilmainham, Kilmainham, I think, in Kilmainham. Yeah, no, it must have been in Kilmainham, because the the thing was, um, he, he he was still horse coping, which was his hobby. He'd done that before, actually, by buying buying troopers for for the army, and then. Um, what do you mean by that? He was what? He was buying troopers, you know, big black horses. Was he really yes. uh, from the farmers yes. locally? Yes. Oh yes. Oh, it's because it was it was a great outlet for the the army was a very good customer for the for, for the farmers. Yes. Uh, a lot of them bred horses for for the army, particularly down around Craig the Manor, and the, the, I, I know that was one of his regular places to go. When he came to the forming of the Free State, what happened? Well, you see, then there was an incident before that. When he was, um, he was only ADC to French, uh, who was the one from last. Uh, um, yeah. I don't know which came first, French or, or Macready. But you remember there was the, the, um, the Ashtown ambush when the IRA tried to shoot uh, French. And my father actually was in charge of French's security. And um, they they'd arranged to have a uh, what looked like the squad car that, that that French would be in, but he wasn't in that. He was in another car, yeah. which looked rather less um, prominent. And so it it was the car that um, looked like French was in, but he wasn't in that. Actually, got shot up during the War of Independence. British Army Field Marshal John French was appointed Lord Lieutenant, Supreme Commander of the British Army in Ireland and the IRA leaders of the Ashtown ambush were Martin Shukru, who was shot and killed at that ambush, Dan Breen, and Tom Kyo were the other leaders. Years later, um, in, in the 1950s, 
when the Military History Society was formed here, yeah. um, which was Irish Army and ex-British Army. My father was one of the founder members of that. And they arranged for him to meet the, the, this chap, uh, who, who, who led that? Uh, who led the, the ambush? Yeah. But but this this IRA commander and he, my father, they had they had a long meeting afterwards in about the fifties, yeah. and they discussed actually the whole thing and and uh, and and how uh, uh, really yes and how my father had actually foiled foiled the <laughs> foiled the plot, but they got on very well and they and they and they remained in touch. Yeah. Um, you know, my father was, was was very interested in 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 military history, and so he was always anxious to get a chance to talk to the other side uh, when the opportunity arose. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and he bore no hard feelings at all. When was he demobbed from the army? Well, see, what happened there was that um, one of the things actually that he did was when he was uh, uh, posted at, uh, in in Kilmainham and being being um, as I say ADC to French and then Macready, um, he actually kept pigs, as a lot of people did. Because there was a lot of a lot of swill from the barracks, as you could imagine, and so you, you got fairly cheap feeding for the pigs. And the general came round and was inspecting um, the the, um, the 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 idea of what the general was in Kilmainham, and he heard a lot of squealing behind the door, and he said, "What's there?" And uh, so they 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 they, they tried to. Um, uh, not have to open the door, but the German sister on the door being open, a whole lot of pigs rushed out and and nearly knocked him over. And he said, "Who the hell do those be- pigs belong to?" He said, "I'm afraid they belong to Captain Bellingham. What the hell is he doing keeping pigs here?" So anyway, it's just one of the things my father did, you know. But, <laughs> but he, it didn't it didn't improve his career, I may say that. <laughs> but then uh, the, the most interesting thing was that at the final, he was present at the final handover. To um, to Michael Collins, and the 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 British handed over their their stock of um, of rifles and other things. But then, when the British Army withdrew, uh, my father went with them because he was still in in, in the army. And Macready was made governor of Gibraltar, yeah. so he took my father with him, and so he became governor of Gibraltar, and he kept on my father as ADC. Then my father got the job of being a British military attaché in Tangiers, which was an international city ruled jointly by the French, the British, uh, the Spaniards. The Germans had done, but the Germans dropped out of it by this time. The Russians had too, but they dropped out by then. And so the Rift War broke out. Do you know about the Rift War? No. Well, um, there was Spanish Morocco and French Morocco, and Spanish Morocco was the strip along the Mediterranean, from Tangier going eastwards. And French Morocco, which was under the protectorate set up by the famous General Lyoté, was the bulk of the country, the southern half. And the Rif were a Berber-speaking tribesman who lived in in the mountains between Spanish Morocco and French Morocco. Yeah. And the Rif rose in revolt against the foreign um, their foreign occupiers, and they pretty well won, and they'd more or less driven the, the Spaniards in into the sea. But the French didn't like that because that was going to set up a, um, a revolt in, in the whole of the rest of Morocco. So the French attacked them from behind, from the south, and ended by defeating them. But when the French had defeated them, they found that the Rif had a whole store of British Army Lee Enfield rifles. So 
my father's opposite number, the, the French military attaché in Tangier, said, once again, we have proof of perfidious Albion. Uh, uh, perfidious Albion has been uh, arming you know, the rebels against us and the Spaniards. My father said, nonsense, uh, they're absolutely not British, British army poli- policy at all, not British policy at all, Abs- not true at all. So the French said, well, I'm very sorry, but here we have all these, these British army rifles. Can we explain? So my father said, it's perfectly simple. You just give me the, the numbers, because every rifle has, has a number. And we'll, and we'll send the numbers to the, to the, um, the magazine in, in Woolwich, and they'll be able to trace where they went. Well, of course, they, could, they, they, they were able to trace them very well, and they had all been sent sometime in the early 19th century to, to Dublin. And then, following the paperwork through, there, what should my father, when the papers were sent to him, what should he see but his own signature, having handed these rifles over to Michael Collins, what had happened then was Michael Collins found that the British had sold him rather um, uh, antiquated rifles, not good enough for what he wanted. Oh, that's fascinating. So yeah, he'd, yeah, sold yes. the, he'd sold them on to a Belgian arms dealer, and the Belgian arms dealer had sold them to the Riff Rebels. <laughs> <laughs> so they'd done the full circle. But that was, the, the, that was my father's main contact with the Free State Army. Oh, but it, it, it's quite interesting. So he was present on the day in, in Dublin Castle. He signed them. He signed over. He signed over. Yes. Well, did he say anything? Did he say, you know, it's an end of an era, it's, it's, it's a change of the guard? Or Well, it was certainly a change. Uh, but my father never regarded it. Yeah, you couldn't look, look upon it as an end of an era. I mean, a lot of things changed. But <clears throat> my father didn't see things that way. I mean, life went on. Uh, his mother was still living on the, on the, on the, on the Hill of Earth. There was an interesting feature about the Hill of Earth <clears throat> was that it was actually uh, <clears throat> uh, um, uh, what do you call it? it? It was regarded as a safe area because De Valera had a friend called Dr. Farnham and he used to come and <clears throat> take refuge in Dr. Farnham's house on the Hill of Earth mm. and Michael Collins also had a friend there who used to come out and stay and there were a lot of uh, British army serving or retired colonels and mm. naval commanders and that. And so by mutual agreement, um, Hoth was never raided. Uh, it was a completely safe place. And some enterprising fisherman, one of my father's friends from the, the, those gun-running days, actually ran a very profitable ferry from Kingstown round to Hoth, because when the mailboat came in, those who didn't want to, 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 to get caught up in the, in the shootings and troubles going on in Dublin could take this ferry to Hoth, and then on the Great Northern Railway, they could get in as far as Hoth Junction, and then take a train on up to Droida or or, um, yes. or to Navan or that, and get away without uh, having to come through come through the Dublin city centre. But there was never any any threats, was there, towards uh, the, the the house and house and and your? No, your, I told your, you, I told your, you, uh, uh, Hoth was a safe area. It was a safe house. A a safe, safe, safe area. The Hoth Peninsula was a safe area. There was never. There was a, for that for that reason. Yeah, it was never threatened. No, no. Um, I mean, mute. And equally, the British Army never raided it, looking for Michael Collins or or De Valera. Yeah. Even though they knew they were there. So there was a kind of a, a mutual agreement, was there? Some kind yeah, of a reciprocal, a, a reciprocal yes. agreement. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, it's extraordinary what goes on, isn't it, behind the scenes? Oh, yes. <laughs> you know. Well, life has to go on. Well, we've come to the end of this week's podcast with John Bellingham. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And if you would like to hear 
the entire interview, um, please go to our website. It's irishlifeandlore.com. My name is Maurice O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week.